You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, if you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning enough to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rich last week, where we put the spotlight on some of the really important statistics that is used to evaluate trading strategies, but where, frankly, it can become quite technical. So it was great to have Rich break them down in a very passionate way, I might add. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I strongly invite you to go back and do so. Now, as you know, the aim of the podcast is to democratize the hedge fund CTA quant investment world, whatever you want to call it. And if you want to be part of our community and this journey, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can send us your questions, if you can share these episodes, and not least if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. And that's really a way for us to see that you get some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will continue to do them. And so with that, Rob, fantastic to have you back this week. You've been taking a little bit of a break over the summer, maybe even from the market. So how are you doing? How are things in the UK? Yeah, things are okay in the UK. I had some, took some holiday, but not didn't actually leave the country. So too difficult at the moment to do that, unfortunately, I guess. And yeah, it's a, it feels like we're in a bit of a crisis situation in the UK uh, because we're having issues with supply chains. But I guess that's common across the world. We're having issues with domestic energy costs. I guess, again, that's common across the world. And we've got this issue with people buying petrol at the petrol pumps. The petrol pumps running dry. So it's starting to feel a little bit like like the, the government's kind of lost its grip slightly on the situation, although obviously there are wider geopolitical factors not helping. And maybe we'll talk about those a bit later in the episode because I think they're kind of interesting. Yeah, I'd love to dive into some of that. I think there is definitely some, how should I put it, some indication that spills over to other issues in the world and that we discuss on the podcast from just observing how this, especially the fuel shortage, in the UK has evolved. So let's get back to that a little bit later. Before I do the market wrap, of course, I would always want to just acknowledge those of you who left the rating and review this week. It really does help. So thanks very much indeed. Now, I think Rob and I are going to talk about the month of September, not so much this week because we had one trading day of October, of course. But I think most of what we're going to talk about now is really relating just to the month of September and maybe Rob want to go back a bit further due to his, um, that it's been a little bit few months uh, since he was on the uh, podcast last. But anyways, what I wanted to say was that September did turn out to be kind of an interesting month in the world of finance. Clearly, the challenge that investors face is that the risk of not so transitory inflation and the Fed's upcoming tapering and the risk of the bond markets, that they will finally reflect this and return to their long-term positive correlation to stocks. And thus, we do really have a, a risk of a continuation of bonds and stocks falling together like they started to do in September. That certainly would make the month September to remember, so to speak. 
Now, it's no secret that inflation has become a real concern, and even the Federal Reserve is backing away somewhat from describing price action as transitory. But the most amusing evidence of the upward creep in prices is perhaps that the retailer in the U.S. called Dollar Tree's announcement this week that they will no longer be able to offer every item in the store for one dollar or less, which they have done since I don't know how many decades. One analyst pointed out that the company is making such a momentum's announcement mid-quarter must mean that rising costs were rapidly eroding their profitability. That seems likely, but I'm willing to bet that should their cost structure come back down, the new pricing strategy probably won't. Another headache for consumers is, of course, the disruption to supply chains around the world. On Friday, General Motors quantified the damage that the chip shortage is doing to their uh, auto industry, reporting that their third quarter sales fell 32% when compared to the same quarter of 2020. It's expected that the other manufacturers report similar sales results as computer chips remain hard to get. Now, looking ahead mid-month, it's expected that the auto sales will drop off and hit headline retail sales. The earlier consensus is that headline measure will fall minus 0.2% versus August up 0.7%. That expectation is likely to fall as we get closer to October's 15th release date. So lower sales expected and thus lower profitability at a time, by the way, where these auto stocks uh, are valued at very lofty levels. A bit of a mouthful for me to go through there today. Much more interesting. Let's hear what you have observed, Rob, in the last few weeks, just from kind of a big picture point of view, performance-wise, market-wise. You kind of already touched on some of or some of the things, I have a feeling. Yeah, so I've, got, I've sort of produced statistics for a few different time periods. So I've got looked at the last week, which is normally the figure that you look at. So that the last week's actually been okay, up 1%. And interestingly, I'm going to go back to the theme of what I was briefly mentioned earlier, my, my best market was actually gasoline. Obviously, that's the, not the same as the UK petrol price, but obviously there's probably a strong correlation there. So uh, WTI crude was also quite, quite a profitable market for me, whereas I was losing money in things like the NASDAQ in, and, and the VIX. And if I look at the kind of risk on, on I'm short VIX. So, you know, it obviously it was a week when volatility rose. So that, that's obviously not good for a, a short VIX position. Whereas I was long, say, NASDAQ, which is effectively a risk on position as well. Whereas in the energy markets, I was long, obviously, they, they rallied. And we that's kind of the big theme that we're talking about. So going, going back um, a little bit further, so just looking at the month of September. So that was a great month for me. I was listening to uh, last week's podcast, and I love the analogy of the, the battleship being... Uh, was it the battleship that he... The, yeah, he, yeah my, he talks about his battleship. He talks about his battleship. Yeah. So my, my, I'm not sure I'm, I'm at the battleship stage, but I'm a sailor. So if you imagine a, a, quite a small sailing dinghy, that, that's what I'm in as, you know, with my retail account. So that, that had a bit of a stormy month as well. So obviously recovered a bit last week, but the week before that wasn't great. And I was down a 5% over the month, which is not great, but you know, could be a lot worse, I guess. Which for the year calendar year as a whole, I'm still up, but only 2.5%. So it's not been a great month. My systems have taken a lot of risk off. I know you use this risk to stop measure. I use a different measure, which is the annualized standard deviation. And of course, anyone listened to last week's episode will know that assumes this kind of mythical Gaussian distribution. So you could argue it's not a great measure from that perspective. But anyway, on that basis, I went from a, a risk of about 22% a year annualized to about 12% a year annualized within a couple of days of all the savage stuff happening last week. So I kind of 
our risk dropped by almost half in a couple of days as you know positions were taken off due to vol scaling, but also due to just due to the fact that trends were sharply reversing. So, so my system at the moment is running with kind of a, not a lot of risk, about half the normal level, average level of risk, but it is kind of positioned for things like continuing you know rallies in say the energy markets. Probably want to come back to some of these points actually once I've done the update on where we stand, you know, at Don and my own trading strategy, because I do think that there are some interesting stuff going on right now that we can talk a little bit about. From our point of view, so from the Don point of view, actually was an okay month for us. The trend following strategies, despite, as you mentioned, one of the strongest trending sectors that we've seen, which is the equities, they ran into some real resistance and could be perhaps in the beginning phase of a more meaningful correction, of course. To offset the losses in equities, we had a continuation, as you mentioned also, in the strong up move in energies. But the best single market for us in September was actually cotton, which of course is another testament to having a well-diversified portfolio. And since bonds and equities sold off together in September and not providing any protection that the investors have become used to, we finally saw the benefit of some of our short positions in the fixed income markets after five, six months of uh, enduring a bit of pain, as we've seen recent prices in bonds uh, actually head upwards. The best contributor in our fixed income sector is very close to your home. It was short sterling and long gills because the Bank of England actually indicated that it would end bond purchases and would likely start raising rates sooner than expected. Currencies and other commodities on our side were pretty flat for the month. Interestingly enough, you mentioned you had a good last week. My trend barometer had been low for a lot of the summer, even into September. But in the last week or so, it moved quite dramatically higher and it finished at 59 at the end of September, which is a very strong reading. And so we coincides well with the positive momentum in the returns we've seen for trend followers in the last week or so. On our side, the volatility strategy, on the other hand, it found itself navigating a challenging environment for volatility with no clear direction during the month with a very active week. So the last week has been pretty active. The strategy tried to buy some volatile earlier during the year, but then it reversed positions towards the end of the week and actually also ended up having a loss for the month as a whole. S&P 500 finally experienced a 5% decline from its previous all-time high that happened on Thursday before rallying again on Friday. But it did technically end this period where we haven't seen a 5% decline. I think it's more than a year actually since we've seen that last, something that was we haven't seen since 2017. September, of course, was the first negative month for the S&P since January of this year with its 4 8% decline in September. My trend following model was more like in line with yours. I have to say it was not a great month. September was down 4.78%. Leaves the year up two and a half so far. Performance, uh, when you break it down by model group, all three model groups were down. So um, model group one, classical trend down 2.38%. Long biased trend following down 1.23% and the fast reacting models were down 1.18%. Sector wise, no big surprises. The top three was really just top two, energies and base metals. And the worst sectors by far, and it's really just one sector that caused all the losses, 
were equities, although there were some small losses as well in bonds and, and short-term interest rates. Single markets, the best ones were aluminum, gas oil, and heating oil. And the worst markets were, again, all equities, NASDAQ, DAX, and the Australian SPY. In terms of this week, Monday, it kicked off getting into some long energy positions as well as cotton. Tuesday, it continued and had a few more of those fills, but also a short bund and a short US 10-year note trade as well as yen and SMI. And then on Wednesday, it got stopped out of some net gas long positions. And the last day of September, which was Thursday, it had a short signal in the euro and, uh, and long signals in lean hogs and gasoline. The risk to stop that you also mentioned, Rob, it increased a little bit this week to 13.28% up from 10.54%. So a little bit more risk in the portfolio. But so overall, what I'm observing at the moment, which is quite interesting, and I, there are many directions we can take this, but I do think it's interesting for people who are listening because when they look at, a, say, a universe of trend followers or CTAs at the moment, they're going to see massive return dispersion. I mean, I know of large managers who had great month last week, uh, sorry, last month. And I know of managers from the early numbers that I've seen that were down maybe 5% last month as well. So the dispersion is huge. And of course, we can speculate, but I think it's fair to say that these newer alternative markets that some managers have embraced, like European energies, Moritz talk about this uh, a lot. I think he's done well in embracing them early. Of course, you have all the Chinese commodities as well. That's certainly one part, I think, of the answer to why we're seeing such huge dispersion returns. Those who have them have done better at, in the last 12 months. And I think especially last, last, last month, if you had some of these European energies markets like UK net gas and whatever it's called, then really that made a huge difference. So actually, it's quite an interesting period to be alive in the trend-following world. See how some of these decisions, some of these small differences that we may not see normally, but how they actually can play out. And of course, we know that at the moment, they may be producing great returns. At some point, there's going to be some retracements, so that might equal out a little bit the difference. But how are you seeing these things uh, playing out? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess there's really three or four different ways that managers can distinguish themselves from each other. And maybe this is something we'll talk about a bit more later because I, I found the episode, a couple of episodes ago, the discussion about manager selection really interesting about you know, how investors oh, yeah, choose sure. managers. Well, Mark, yeah. So obviously you, you're kind of getting at the fact that you can have a different mixture of markets. And that could be because you've got a, you know, a lot of new and interesting markets. So you've got these power markets, you've got markets that, that are not traditional CTA markets. And that might be because you can't trade, they're not futures, right? You have to trade them OTC or with some other kind of instrument, for example. Or, you know, or maybe, and we've obviously had this discussion a lot on the podcast about single stocks. You know, single stocks are not a traditional CTA instrument because, you know, you wouldn't normally hold them in a futures managed account because they're single stocks. So I think the more of these unusual things you can have in your portfolio, the better. But that's not, and, and I've, I often have this discussion with people, they say, well, is the reason you want these things in your portfolio because they trend better? Is it because they're less liquid or maybe just because there's less trend followers playing in that particular you know, sandpit? Does that mean you're, it's easy to make money in them? And I, I personally do not believe that's the case. I, 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 don't, I think maybe we've, there are obviously periods when, for example, if you had access to a particular 
market or set of markets, you would have done better than other guys. But I think over the very long run, that's just noise. I don't think mm. over the very long run, there's any reason to say that a particular set of markets will be easier to trade because there's perhaps fewer trend followers in there. That's my personal opinion. So I, th- I think it does come down to diversification. So you know, if you're trading a portfolio that consists only of kind of large liquid US, US traded futures, you've got a lot less diversification on your plate than if you're able to access all of these other things as well. So that, that's the first thing is that how many of these things do you have? And the second thing then comes down to how you kind of allocate your risk between different sectors and different markets, right? So, and that can lead to quite a lot of difference in performance over periods of months or even, I say, a couple of years, because you can have periods when all the performance and trend following is being driven by, say, for example, fixed income, or where it's being driven very much by perhaps what's happening in, I don't know, soft commodities, or at the moment, it's being driven very much by energy markets. So if you're a CTA that has an over-allocation to one of those sectors, then you're going to look really amazing for the, you know, for the few months or even a couple of years when that's the sector that's driving returns. Whereas a, a more diversified manager will probably do better, over, well, I believe they will do better over the very long run again. But obviously, in, in a short period of time when someone's got more allocation to, say, energy markets then they'll look a lot better. I mean, you have some CTAs that focus purely on trading, you know, just one sector, right? You've got CTAs that, for example, completely exclude the financial sector uh, sectors and just focus on commodities because, you know, they believe that's a purer... It's commodity trading advisor, right? The C stands for commodity. That, that's kind of their viewpoint. So that can lead to quite a lot of dispersion, particularly at periods like now when you have some sectors like, you know, the last few weeks, you've got sectors like equities where big trends have just finished, and that's obviously going to lose you money. You've got other sectors like energies where big trends are continuing, obviously that's going to make you money. That, that allocation you have there can make a big difference to your returns. And then obviously, we come back to the old question of, you know, how quickly you trade. So timeframes is a, another way that, that, and I remember, I think I was listening to you last week, Niels, and you were saying that people who were trading very slowly would, would barely have noticed the sell-off we had, because their models have just hung on people who were trading sort of medium or fast speed would have been stopped out, you know, would have reduced their positions very quickly and therefore wouldn't have benefited from, you know, the kind of bounce back that we had in those markets. So that, again, can lead to quite big differences in dispersion between managers. And then you've, we can get further into things like how much you allocate to pure momentum actually carry and so on and so forth. So the C, we, 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 people forget the CTA universe is a very broad church and even amongst people who are, you know, very pure trend followers, there can be you can do a quite a lot different in terms of how you allocate to markets and things like that. Yeah, and you touch on some a lot of great points. Let me try and just sort of um, think loudly about some of the things that comes to mind when I hear that. First of all, of course, you talk about the market diversification. I think this is really critical, probably at what we see right now, because there has been, you know, a few markets. Jerry often talks about Moderna as being something that has really worked incredibly well for for him as a single stock, as a position for him. Bitcoin for others, UK net gas for people, emissions. I mean, there's been like, I think about them as kind of five, ten really outliers this year. And had you had all of them, you would have been, you know, done amazingly. Had you none of them, you'd probably be much more in line with what we're seeing on our side where we don't trade any of these. And then somewhere in between, depending on that. So there's a couple of interesting things. If we just talk about the Chinese markets, for example, where I certainly have read papers and seen or heard conversations 
about where people say, well, these markets are a little bit different in the sense that it seems like it's better to trade them slightly faster in terms of look back period. And some people equate that to maybe it's a different audience, so to speak. It's a different constituents of traders involved in that. It's much more Chinese retail money, and and maybe there's a reason for that. And so that opens another set of questions, of course, and that is, do you pick your parameters by market or do you pick your parameters globally? And that's a whole uh, another kettle of of fish. You can we can go down into that. So that's one thing that that I find is 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 very interesting. Yeah. No. I mean, as you know, I'm 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 a bit of a skeptic about about these kind of market specific type situations, and I think this is something that one of the few things that Jerry and I have in common perhaps is that I believe very strongly that you should trade everything the same unless there's strong evidence to indicate otherwise. And it has to be very strong evidence. And it's quite rare you see statistically enough evidence to suggest that you'd have a completely different set of parameters for one market than for another market. Sometimes you see a little bit a little bit of evidence that justifies a slight tilt towards very slightly faster or slightly slower trading, but it's unusual. Well, actually, I've never seen a case where I've seen strong statistical evidence that would suggest, for example, that you should trade one market a lot faster than another market. This is ignoring costs, of course, which, you know, affect, affect how fast you should trade as well. You know, given all of these differences, right, what I actually sit sort of left with here is how on earth do we know which quote-unquote system is better? When you strip all of these differences away, you know, which markets they trade and, as you say, kind of risk management, et cetera, et cetera. How do investors, how do we as curious and nosy peers in, in our industry actually find out or even have a clue as to the raw trend-following approach? How do we determine whether it's better, average, worse? Because all of these other factors could actually make them look better or look worse. So have you ever thought about that? I mean... I've thought about it. And, and in fact, one of the things that um, AHL used to do when I was there, I don't know if they still do it, was to try and do some sort of decomposition of the competitor's returns. So, that, you know, kind of classic quant approach, you should say, well, I think, I think there are some factors driving this series of returns. So in, in a classic kind of equity portfolio approach, you'd say, well, I think there's a value factor, a growth factor, and so on and so forth. And you can, the first thing you do is construct your factors. So you, you would do something like, you know, the classic Farmer French approach of buying top quartile, selling bottom quartile stocks, and looking at the returns of that portfolio, and you say, "Well, that's this is my value factor." And you do the same with growth, and so on and so forth. So the difference here is that that you your portfolios would be something like, "Okay, I'm going to construct a simple trend following benchmark for fixed income. I'm going to construct a simple trend following benchmark for FX, and so on and so forth." So now you've got your factors, and your factors are basically trend following in different sectors. And then what you do is you take the monthly returns of, of the competitor that, that you want to check out. If you've got daily returns, great, but normally you don't. If you're working with you know, public information, monthly is only the best you've got. And then you run a, um, a regression, and that will tell you the loadings on each of those factors. And you can do it in a time-varying way, so you can try and see how that loading's changing over time. This is an exercise that is fraught with danger because you know, you're probably talking about I mean, how many sectors are there? Let's say there's five sectors. So you've got five things you're estimating. You know, unless you're looking at a fund like Dunn, which has been around a very long time, you might only have 100 data points, perhaps. So, you know, you might have 10 years, 120 data points. That's getting towards a longer-lived life 
and right. other funds, right? So, and then you're not just trying to estimate those five things individually, you're actually trying to estimate how they change over time as well, because you know they're time varying. So it's an exercise in, in kind of uh, potentially massive overfitting, because you, you end up, you can you always get numbers out, and that you might say, oh, it looks like these guys are doing really well, because last the last six months, they've had a higher allocation to energies than we have, because look at this number here. Mm. It's doing this incredibly interesting thing. It's showing up this big factor loading. But because you've got so many variables and so much uncertainty and, and you're working with probably what's quite a limited pool of data, it's actually very difficult to work out what those factor loadings really are. And you can try similar exercises with speed. You can try and work out how fast someone's trading with it by doing a similar thing by constructing factors and so on and so forth. So personally, I didn't think it was a very worthwhile exercise at the time, I'll be completely honest with you. And it's certainly something I, I know I, I don't bother with now. But, you know, if you if obviously if you're working for a, you know, a fund of funds or a family office right. and you're employing quants, this is the kind of thing that those quants might be thinking about doing. To me, it's a little bit futile, to be honest with you. I'm not sure it achieves very much, but some funds will actually tell you anyway. You know, if you look at their, their monthly reports, they will actually say, here's our current risk exposures in different sectors. So you the information there. You don't need to do the regression. So you can actually get the information that way. But, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, and I think we have to recognize analyzing managers we talked about it with mark a, a couple of weeks ago in terms of what goes into the selection process and you know i'll be the first to say i think a lot of um, investors have a pretty tough job in telling one manager from the other in terms of that and you know on top of everything else of course we have no idea what the future holds and what's interesting to me is that when i when i drill down a little bit just because you know i get questions about it when I drill down to some of these indices that we report, of course, on the podcast every week, and you look at the constituents and you see, well, hang on, here are some managers who may not have made any money, really, for 10 years leading into 2020, and suddenly they're the top performers, you know, in the last 18 months. So is it the models that have changed? Is it just because they've selected different markets? I mean, it becomes an interesting, um, but as you say, pretty difficult thing to to estimate uh, with any certainty. No. Let's leave it at that. I'm sure there. Are. I want to get a question through because uh, Matt has been incredibly patient. He sent in this question while you were on uh, on holiday, so it's been sitting here molding for <laughs> like five, six weeks. So, uh, so I hope Matt, you uh, are very excited with Rob being back. And of course, Matt, I think it's fair to say that um, we may as well put it out there that that we're going to make a lot of disclaimers here because your question relates to tax. And of course, we are no tax experts. We're no financial advisors when it comes to the podcast. But anyways, we want to give you a chance to uh, hear Rob's thoughts anyway. So Matt writes in, and I'm sure we have lots of other listeners in the UK, so it could be relevant for other people. You write in, I wanted to ask if Rob has ever considered using spread betting to form a diversified trend-following portfolio versus using futures. I do exactly this and can manage risk, hold position and execute the strategy in the same ways that you mentioned. The advantage being in the UK is that it is 100% completely tax-free to do so as you're simply betting on the rise or fall in price of a of the derivative product. Like a CFD, only even more straightforward. And for some reason, in the UK, CFDs are liable to capital gains tax, whereas spread bets are not. Nobody ever mentions them, but I'm at a loss as to why. Sure, they can be highly leveraged, but if you have a um, sense of control, you can manage them in the same way that you manage risk via other instruments. 
I trade around 40 markets. My average risk per trade is about 0.3%. And currently my risk to stop, sorry, Jerry, is 7.99%. I have, and this is back in August, I have 31 positions on at present. This all seems to tally with stats that and you mentioned that must be me on your own system. So it feels like it can't be too wrong to spread bet. Anyways, your thoughts on spread betting. Um, right, yeah, so spread betting. So um, I was actually getting uh, one of my books off the shelf, I'm embarrassed to say, because I did actually write a book about le leverage trading, which covered um, futures, obviously, but also covers CFDs, spread bets, trading stocks on margin FX, and so on and so forth. So it's not very often I plug my own books on this podcast, so I hope you'll forgive me. Sure. Spread bets are interesting. So they, they do have this, this big advantage. Well, they've got two advantages, actually. One is the one you've mentioned, which is tax. And this is an interesting quirk of the of the UK tax system in that basically gambling is is not a taxed activity if you're um, if you're the person gambling, and this is a change from about I think it's about fifteen years ago. So about so before about fifteen years ago, when you placed a bet in in the you know in a UK bookmakers, and that would be a bet on a, could be a bet on a horse, could be a bet on anything, right? You'd have to pay a, a small amount of tax, um, and I think you only and you had the choice actually of paying the tax when you made your bet. Or when you've got your winnings back. So depending on how confident you are, if you were going to win or not, right? Because if you were, if you're confident in your win, you'd you'd pay the tax beforehand, and it would be a lower amount than if you won. So anyway, that's by the by. But the system changed about 15 years ago, and now basically, when you gamble, your profits are completely untaxed, except for a very tiny, tiny percentage of people. Um, so if there's anyone out there who's basically making a living out of gambling. And the the rules are very strict as to what what you know what that is. It, it's it's you know not not a uh, a very likely occurrence that the the inland revenue would treat you like that. But from for ninety nine point nine nine percent of people who are doing any kind of gambling, it's effectively untaxed. And the reason that happens is that the the actual gambling companies themselves then pay a special levy to the to the treasury. That's the first advantage of spread betting because it is betting. It's not taxed. So normally, if I'm trading say futures or CFDs in the UK, if I make a profit. I have to pay what's called a capital gains tax on that profit above a, a certain level if I make losses and I can offset them against some profits and, and so on and so forth. Now, the, the other advantage of spread bets, and this is perhaps not so obvious, is you don't need as much money to trade them as you do futures. And that's because they've basically got a small uh, kind of contract size. So no, a, lot, a lot of the spread bets run at about one-fifth or one-tenth of the contract size for the future. And what that means is it comes back to one of my favorite topics, which is, as a smaller retail investor, how can I get adequate diversification? Well, it, it's, an, it's an issue with futures because of the big tick sizes. But if you trade spread bets or CFDs as well, actually, mm. you can potentially trade more markets with less money, which obviously is a good thing because it gives you the diversification we've already talked about, which is you know, a wonderful thing. Yeah. So those are the two big advantages of spread bets. There is also a disadvantage of them, which is that they're generally more expensive to trade than futures. So I did a little exercise in, in my book, actually, which is why I was just pulling it off the shelf. And what I did was to say, well, what kind of portfolio size would it make sense to trade a spread bet? Okay. And it's, it's not a, a straightforward calculation because, um, you know, it depends on a lot of things like how much these costs are, the, the kind of amount of money you have to pay before you have to pay tax. But anyway, so what I did was say, well, okay, let's suppose you've got a choice between trading gold futures and trading a gold spread bet, okay, so like the equivalent product. And I said, well, because, because of the, the way, what, it, what effectively happens is as you, as you put, have more money, you're going to be paying more tax, okay? 
So there's kind of basically a level at which you have en- enough money that your tax savings exceed the additional cost that you're paying. Did I explain that okay? Yeah. Yep. Sure. So I did a quick calculation, and the number I came up with was £339,327. So let's call that £340,000. So you need to have, for this just this one product, quite a lot of money. I mean, hundreds of thousands of pounds in your trading account before you actually save money from the, the tax savings and they, over, they overcome the, the additional costs that you're paying. Now, actually, that's a pretty sizable account. And that, that, that with, yeah. you know, it's unlikely that... It's surprising when you hear that, right? It's, it's yeah, exactly. And that's big. Well, now, there are a lot of assumptions going into that calculation. And one of those assumptions is I make fairly conservative assumptions about your returns, because obviously the higher your returns are going to be, you know, the, the higher, ta- the more tax you're going to pay. But, you know, that I think to me, it makes more sense to be conservative. Now, I wouldn't say that, that you should never trade spread bets because the, the other, you know, this diversification advantage is pretty substantial, actually. So, for example, if you've got, say, I don't know, uh, say, let's say a £50,000 account and you've got the choice between trading, say, I don't know, 10 spread bet markets or trading one futures market, yes, spread bets are more expensive, but actually the diversification benefit you're going to get from having 10 markets rather than one almost certainly outweighs that extra cost. So I would personally say, if you're considering spread bets, forget the tax angle completely, okay? Because it's almost certainly not going to be a factor in your calculations, okay? Just look at the costs, look at the diversification benefits, and that's the trade-off you should be thinking about. Not, not just, generally speaking, I think it's a good piece of advice to people is, when you're making investment and trading decisions, don't really concern yourself with tax. Because it makes things it makes things quite complicated, and the other thing is, I think people will then tend to do things purely for, to get the tax benefits without thinking about the the investment decisions. And a classic thing is, you know, selling a stock, for example, at a particular point of the year, not necessarily because you want to sell the stock, but because you you can get make a tax loss. What I would do is is say, well, actually, I'm going to sell this stock. Okay, what are the tax implications? Maybe I should, and that might make me change my decision. But the point is, you never make a decision purely because of the, the tax implications. And I think this spread bet versus futures decision should be like that. Forget about the tax implications, focus on diversification, focus on costs. Great stuff. Very detailed answer for Matt there. So uh, probably worth the wait for you. Now, quick question just for, from Joel. Is this something that we probably touched on in one of the episodes while you were away? I think the, the question came up or the discussion came up about in terms of starting a firm nowadays, what it really takes nowadays, you know, has the barrier to entry gone up, which is my view at least. And uh, Joel um, has a question here that he sent, and this is also, I think, a little while ago, and I just want to hear your take on it. Um, how much investor money would you need to get started nowadays if you wanted to start a firm and where do you tend to find uh, investors so just uh, maybe a quick few thoughts on that before we dive into your topics yeah i mean it depends a lot on on well where joel's based do we know if he's like us or europe or uk or i didn't check that yeah so i think the barriers to entry are higher in in europe generally than they are in the us unless maybe you're in Liechtenstein or something i don't know (laughs) you know when i when i say europe i mean you know most of Europe, and that means, but the the main the main kind of implication of that is you have you have sort of a certain amount of fixed costs you have to pay, regardless of how big your fund is. You're going to have to pay a certain amount of money 
on on tax, on on compliance, and so on and so forth. And um, you know, it it depends on on how you structure yourself. So you know, if if you're in a kind of incubator type structure where you've got a kind of big fund that's sort of looking after you, then they'll they'll kind of handle a lot of that stuff for you. Yeah. But but the downside is that they'll they'll normally kind of take a chunk of equity in your your management company, or they'll they'll invest in your fund. Uh, you know, uh, basically get get a good rate for it. So you know, it, it it depends how I guess how confident you are about your future. So you know, if you if you're extremely confident about your success, then in the long run, it's probably cheaper but a lot more work to do everything yourself if you want a slightly easier path then if you can get yourself into an incubator type structure or have a situation where you're you're kind of sponsored by a big fund who also acts as a seed investor then that can help i mean it's it's difficult to say i mean i know people who've started funds with say a a couple of million euros but that's really tough i mean that's very very minimal amounts of money and 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 the problem with that is that, that unless you're you know you have kind of a good year straight away and start to collect management and performance fees and then to start attracting people at a quick rate it's very hard to to kind of keep a, a fund going with that level of money i mean you, you basically can't really pay yourself anything at all you plus plus the cost of running the fund yeah. uh, it just becomes uh you know too 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 expensive I, I just want to say to you joel on this is that actually go back and listen to the conversation i had with mark a couple of weeks ago because what was very clear is that Nowadays, if you want to attract external investors, certainly the quote-unquote professional external investors, it really is all about having enough organizational substance Mm -hmm. and experience, not so much about whether you have the best strategy and the best returns, because uh, veto rights always sits with the operational due diligence uh, girl or or man. So uh, so, yeah, check that out. It's going to inform you a little bit about that. But I think in general, it's fair to say that uh, nowadays, unfortunately, if you want to start on your own, you have to have a lot of assets behind you. Yeah. Now I want to shift gear, Rob, to get to some of your topics, which I don't know exactly where you're going to go on this, so it's going to be uh, news to me as well. So we'll see how 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 we uh, how we get on. The first topic you said, just you know, just some general stuff. You put up a point that you wanted to discuss and you call it kind of general stuff going on and uh, some of the some of the things we may have touched upon already but feel free to jump into some of those things so well there's a couple of things i wanted to talk about so one was the energy markets i think we've kind of done that and we kind of talked about the energy markets probably enough so the other the other thing that that's kind of interesting this comes up every every few years is this whole issue around the u.s debt ceiling and this platinum coin right I mean, and I, and I don't know, I, I think we may have talked about this in the podcast, but probably not for a couple of years. So so I hope people will in, indulge me in, in, um, in listening to me moaning about this again, because this is really one of my, my pet peeves, the, the US debt ceiling. So this is the idea that the, the US government can only issue a, a fixed amount of debt. And this, if you think about this logically, it's complete madness, right? Because economies grow and the nominal value of money changes over time. So, for example, if if the US debt ceiling was was say something like, oh, we have a debt ceiling of say I don't know, forty percent of GDP. Okay, I mean that that's not unreasonable, right? Because okay, fine, yeah, forty percent of GDP. You may you, we can discuss whether that's the right figure, but measuring it as a proportion of GDP makes complete sense, right? Because the GDP will reflect the ability of the economy to support that debt. The, well, the combination of the GDP and the interest rates, effectively, in the tax base of the country. But you know that—that's to me that—that that makes perfect sense. And and 
maybe 40% is too low. Maybe the US could probably get away with a much bigger figure, but at least it would be denominated in the correct figure. But oh no, not the US. They they have a, a debt ceiling that, that's measured in actual, like, an, as a notional value. So it's actually Dollars, a fixed yeah. amount of money. And, you know, if you think about this, this is completely insane because obviously what will happen over time is if that figure stays the same, but GDP grows as it does, then that number will become a, a smaller and smaller percentage of GDP. Now, I don't know what the first US debt ceiling was, but I'd probably, because it's quite a lot, a thing that's been around for quite a long time, I think. It's been around for several decades. I would wager that that original debt ceiling figure is now an absolutely tiny, tiny percentage of GDP and an almost irrelevant amount of money. It's probably what the you know the US government spends on toilet paper in, in a year or something like that. It's just, just going to be completely tiny. So because of this, this, this debt ceiling has to be regularly raised because obviously if it's a fixed amount of money, GDP grows, well, it just becomes a nonsense, right? Unless, unless the US can always run with no debt at all, which again, I think would be insane. And it becomes a big, a big political issue. And I, I think I first became aware of it from a markets perspective uh, in 2011 when um, I was coming back from a, a very nice holiday in France and I was in the car. Um, I put the radio on and I, I heard that the, the, the negotiations about the debt ceiling had broken down. Some of the listeners may remember this. I'm sure, I know you do, Niels. And that as a result, the, U, the US um, government, you know, as a country was going to be downgraded. Its debt was going to be drown, downgraded. And my wife said to me, oh, what does that mean? I said, and I said in a very kind of tired voice, it means I'm going to have to go to the office very, very early tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a very interesting situation, of course, because you had this bizarre situation where US debt had been downgraded. So what did everybody do? They went and bought US debt because this massive shock was hitting the markets. Everyone was panicking. What do people do in a panic? Well, they, they buy safe assets. They buy, oh, what's a safe asset? Oh, US treasuries. So they, you know, it, it seemed very counterintuitive, but that's what happened then. So this, the, uh, the, this debt ceiling thing comes around every few years, and it's a big political argument. In, and, uh, you know, it it's kind of illustrates both the strengths and the weaknesses of the US political system with this separation of powers that's written in the Constitution, whereas in, say, the UK, we effectively have what is called an elective dictatorship, because normally a single, you know, there's a single unit that controls parliament, that controls the, the executive, and there obviously are some legal checks with the ju- judiciary. But in, in terms of borrowing and spending, our government can pro- pretty much borrow and spend as much as it likes. Interestingly, about 10 years ago, the UK government did pass a bill limiting the size of the amount that could be borrowed, but it was as a percentage of GDP. And interestingly, a few years later, they, they quietly got rid of that bill because they were, you know, they were exceeding the limits. So it seemed a bit, a bit pointless to have a law, a law like that. So anyway... It reminds me of, um, you know, the Maastricht Treaty, I think it was, for the EU, where they came into force with this, oh, you can only have 2% deficit of your GDP or whatever the number was. And of course, it didn't take very long before most countries in Europe were well above that. And they talked about having fines and restrictions if if you're above it. But frankly, you never hear about it anymore, probably because most of the members are way outside those uh, rules that they themselves came up with, which is kind of ironic. Well, I remember actually almost 20 years ago when I was working in an investment bank and we, we were issuing this debt for the government of Italy. And um, this debt had this very strange convoluted kind of embedded derivative within it. And that was purely there to make the, the debt look smaller than it really was. So basically, we were selling some debt with some notional value. 
but actually the notional value was a lot bigger because there was all this optionality that effectively was being sold to the investors by the by the government of Italy. And, you know, I think similar games were going on with, with Greece as well to try and, you know, get them into the euro or stay in the euro. So yeah, Financial engineering. Well, yeah. So the platinum coin is effectively about financial engineering. It's about a loophole. It's about a loophole to get through this debt ceiling, which is, which is pretty stupid. So basically the, the debt ceiling... It's sort of a limit on how much uh, debt that the US government could issue. Um, but like all, all you know, things that are written down, it has loopholes in it. And uh, I actually read this. So this is section 51112 brackets K of the US code, which authorizes the US Mint to issue platinum bullion coins and proof platinum coins in accordance with such specifications, designs, varieties, quantities, denominations, and inscriptions as the secretary may prescribe from time to time. So basically, if you're the US government, you can mint a coin. As long as it's platinum, it has to be platinum. God knows why it has to be platinum. But okay. If it's a platinum coin, you can issue this coin in any any denomination you like, which means you could issue a $100 platinum coin. Be a nice souvenir for people. Mm-hmm. But you can also issue a $1 trillion or a $10 trillion or a $100 trillion, as many trillions as you like, platinum coin. And this would basically be a way of completely getting around this, this issue on, of US debt. So it's, it's a very, to me, it's a very bizarre situation because the whole US ceiling thing is, to me, is just from an economic, you know, anyone who's got any training in economics would think this makes no sense at all. And it's this weird loophole to get through it. And I don't, I don't know whether they're going to do it. Like everyone talks about it every few years, but I, I think the platinum coin is more a kind of a, a sort of threat that the, the Biden administration has in its back pocket to say, well, if the Republicans are really intransigent and don't let us pass this spending bill and increase the debt ceiling, we've, we've got this coin in our back pocket. We can, we can pull it out when we're ready. But I, I don't think it will ever get issued because, it, it, I mean, it would, I think it would, to an extent, make the US a bit of a laughing stock, to be honest with you. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, on a lighter note about the debt ceiling, all I can say is that... Uh, and maybe I can get our producer of the podcast to find the link and put in the show notes for this episode. But on YouTube, there is actually a, an artist called Remy, R-E-M-Y, and he has done a song and has a pretty solid beat called Raise the Dead Ceiling. Um, and it is definitely just about exactly what you have talked about. So maybe that's your... Uh, uh, that's the what what people should go and do next after they listen to us ramble for an hour and that go and listen to this. Uh... I mean, Niels, I I feel like we've had the same kind of um, introductory music on this show for a long time. I think maybe it's ready for a change. I think. Yeah, I'm 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 a little bit worried about copyrights, oh, yeah. right? So uh, I I actually thought about this could be a pretty good way to uh, introduce this episode. I don't know enough about copyrights. Maybe um, those of us who are on the show regularly should um, actually write our own and sing our own debt ceiling rap or something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not quite sure I'm sold on that idea, Rob. Let's jump on to the Let's. next thing uh, that you uh, talked about, and that is that you've implemented some new stuff in your own system about position constraints based on leverage and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, so let's get back to the regular content. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, what it is is that um, I volatile, volatility scale my positions, which is what pretty much everybody does. Of course, the difference between me and, say, Jerry or Moritz is that I actually adjust those positions over time, even if I haven't closed a trade. But th- for the purpose of this discussion, it doesn't actually matter. The point point is that the when a trade is opened, I've got a volatility scale position on, which is basically what 
most people do. And that obviously means that for a market with a relatively small amount of risk, so we're talking about things like, for example, quite short-end bonds or maybe interest rate futures, they tend to have very low risk. Some of the G10 currency pairs have fairly low risk as well. But, you know, the very, very low risk is things like, say, the the, the German two-year bond or Schatz future, as it's known, the Korean three-year bond, which I also have my portfolio, the US two-year bond. It's these very short end bonds. And the consequence of that is that what you find is that you you have no positions that kind of in notional value are very large. And therefore, you're buying quite, you know, quite a large number of contracts of these things. Go, you know, so most things in my portfolio, I own perhaps one, two or three contracts in most things. But in some of these bonds, you know, I, I was holding 10, 20, 30 contracts. And uh, it's, it's a bit, I, I was thinking, oh, I'm a bit, I'm a bit concerned about, about this, um, you know, having 30 contracts. Because, I mean, it's very unlikely. But if, if, if I was, let's, let's take the US two-year bond just as an example. So I think the the notional value of each contract, so to get that, you multiply the, the contract multiplier, which is 100 by the price, which is about, I don't know, 140? Does that sound about right? Something like that. Let's say it's 140. So, so each contract's worth $140,000. If I've got, say, 10 of these things, that's $1.4 million. And my futures trading account is about half a million dollars. So it, it's actually multiples. The exposure on this one market is multiples of my actual trading capital, yeah, nearly three right. times. And it's obviously very unlikely that the US two-year bond future would drop in value by, say, a third, you know, overnight before I was able to close my position. That's very, it's very unlikely. But it's still like, oh, a little makes you a bit nervous. And, 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 and I, you know, I, I've kind of um, not had this as an issue for a while. It's something that's cropped up quite recently because I, I changed the, um, you know, the way my system allocated the different instruments uh, a few months ago. And I had a, a bigger allocation to some of these shorter end uh, instruments than I had before. So it's something that's always kind of been at the back of my mind, but it's really brought to the forefront. So, okay, so let's think about this. We're, we're systematic traders. So when we see something in our portfolio that makes us nervous, we don't just kind of quietly creep in and close the position, do we? We, we don't do that. We say, no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my system. I'm going to modify it. I'm going to come up with a way that to address this problem that is systematic. I'm going to backtest and make sure it's not doing anything crazy or that it's you know having a, a damaging effect on our performance. I'm going to do things properly. So what I did was, was to introduce a very, very simple rule, which is basically this. I will not take a position in any instrument that is more than 100% of my notional account value. Okay. So what does that mean in practice? It means that for the US two-year bond futures that we've been talking about, they're about $140,000 each. That means I wouldn't be able to take a position of more than three, three contracts three. in that particular instrument, for example. And so that, that's it. And, you know, I backtest it. It has almost no effect on my performance, which is nice to know. And it just means I can, I can sleep a bit easier at night, you know. And, and it, it's, quite, it's, a, it's quite a crude way of doing risk management. I mean, it, it's not very fancy and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite simplistic. But it just means that if anything, my portfolio ever goes to zero, whatever reason, you know, well, it kind of puts a, a limit on my, my loss in a real kind of quote-unquote black swan event, basically. So yeah, I just, yeah. just thought I'd throw it out there. And I'm wondering if you or anyone else has similar kind of crude limits on leverage, which is effectively what it is. Well, I mean, so what I would say is, first of all, that this kind of point came up in a Twitter discussion this week, actually. And my 
contribution to that was to say, well, another way of looking at it would be to say, if you're concerned about certain instruments having such low volatility that the position size would go crazy, like you just described, then another way of doing that would be to have different levels of volatility that you measure in your position sizing and and pick the, the larger of the two. So you could have a long-term volatility level and you could have a short-term volatility level. You would think the longer-term volatility level would be higher, at least compared to wh- where we currently are because uh, short-term interest rates have been pretty much you know flatlined for a while. And that would kind of take care of some of the issue your way of doing it is another way of doing it. So I would just say that that's another way of looking at it. It's just to say, well, hang on. If it's the low volatility that creates the the, the issue, well, then maybe I need to have a different kind of a flaw. Essentially, it's a volatility flaw. Yeah, interesting. So actually, interesting, that's something I do, actually. That's sort of the change I made quite recently is that my, my measure of volatility is effectively a, 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 a roughly a 40-60 split between a long-term measure and, and the more traditional, like roughly one-month measure. So yeah. that, that that's something I do. Um, actually, interestingly, I did used to have a crude, a, a crude volatility floor, which basically said if the volatility in in- instrument is less than some number of basis points per year, yeah. then basically don't let the volatility go below that. That is roughly equivalent to having a crude limit on leverage, to be honest. It doesn't really make, yeah. make a lot of difference. Yeah. The other thing you can, well, there's two other things you can do. One is to actually reduce, deliberately reduce your allocation in that instrument below the level you'd normally have. So you'd say, for example, well, okay, I've potentially got 10 US two-year bond futures. I'm only happy with three. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide, I'm going to only put a third of my risk capital into that US two-year bond rather than what I would normally do. So you kind of move away from the the kind of, you know, your optimized risk allocations to reduce your weight to things that particularly scare you. Mm. Um, and you can, and of course, you can take that to an extreme, which is to say, well, actually, if something's really, really got real, almost no volatility, I'm just going to actually take it out of my system completely because, you know, it just, just scares me too much. And one interesting thing, actually, as well, is the way that if you look at the, the costs of trading, because I, I, I believe you should always look at costs as in a risk-adjusted way as well. So you should always look at your costs adjusted for volatility because if you scale your positions by volatility, then your costs, to, to kind of compare costs across the instrument, you should also compare costs that are scaled by volatility, effectively risk-adjusted costs. If you do that, what you will find is that the lower the, lower the volatility that something has, generally speaking, the higher its risk-adjusted cost will be. So for example, the US two-year bond future specifically is actually the, the, the third most expensive market in the list of markets whose costs I monitor. So I could say, well, if the costs are high on a certain level, I'm actually going to not trade that instrument at all because I've got plenty of other instruments I could be trading. The SHATS is actually the fourth most expensive. I can see that the the Korean three-year bond is up there as well. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that approach because essentially, as you're reading it out loud, you would lose a lot of these shorter-term interest rates. So I I'm I'm a, I'm I like what you've done. I think it makes sense. And I, and I think this is again when we design our systems there's nothing wrong with using common sense. I think for me the most important thing is that it becomes a rule and you backtest and you see if you're happy with it. I'm not a big fan of some of the other things that uh, we sometimes hear from our friends and that is where they make a discretionary override and say yeah, I'll just cut it in half. 
I don't know because then the back test. Where where would that show up in a back test? So I'm I'm more a fan if you could find rules that you can stick to a hundred percent rather than ninety nine point five percent of the time. But it's a give and take, and we are we're all different. So uh, obviously there's no wrong or right at the end of the day. Very diplomatically put, Niels. Well, you know that's that's how we do it. That's how we roll. Speaking about diplomatically uh, speaking, you kindly asked, which we've obviously already done, you plucked one of your <laughs> books, but you kindly asked if you could pluck another one. And this one I'm excited about because I have no idea what it's going to be about, other than you promised a very big acknowledgement to the Top Traders Unplugged crew. So uh, besides that, Rob, what are you writing about? Yeah, so I don't normally do this. I don't. I'm, I try not to you know, plug my own stuff on here too much. I think it's a bit cheeky. But I'm, I'm actually, I've just started writing a new book. I'm about two and a half chapters into it. So it'll probably come out probably in about, probably late late next year, maybe Christmas next year, roughly, I think. And the reason I'm actually speaking about it now, it's is what we call in economics a commitment mechanism. Because basically, the more people I tell I'm writing a book, the more pressure there's going to be on me to actually finish yeah. it on time. So that that's one reason why I'm mentioning it. And the second reason I'm mentioning it is because it's still in, in, obviously, in the very early stage. I'm kind of welcome to any ideas or concepts people want to to talk about. So I'll just tell you the title, the, well, the working title sure. of the book is Advanced Futures yeah. Trading Strategies. So it's going to be a book specifically about trading futures, whereas you know my previous books have been more, more generic. Um, so it's not, for example, a book about, say, the details of backtesting or things like that. So I have written about those a bit before, and I, maybe book five will be a more just on backtesting, perhaps, for example, it's very much on practical stuff that you need to know about when you're trading futures and particular ways of of, of trading different future strategies. So, so, uh, so, I have three requests. The first request is is keep asking me about the book, and that will help me finish it because of the pressure that I'll sure. feel like I'm under. If anyone's got any topics they want to hear about, then please, um, you know, contact me through any of the usual places. And uh, thirdly, when it comes out, I will of course acknowledge you Niels and all of the team because there we are much of the the content will will be uh, has been will be driven by thoughts I've had over the the last few years uh, given by the very interesting discussions and debates we have on this program so yeah yeah and I think that's great I mean and congratulations on on starting a, a, a new commitment like that that is a big commitment and uh, I can fully uh, understand this idea of putting it out there so it puts a little bit of a pressure and 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 at least now you can say that there are thousands and thousands of people who have heard this and therefore there will be a lot more pressure than uh, before you mentioned it i will also just uh remind uh, one of our other friends uh, at the podcast who i'm trying to uh, do a book with to come out uh, hopefully before christmas of next year oh. um, but just as a little reminder and this is not anything you know i'm sure as quite as fancy as yours but he knows who he is, and and I'm sure he. Well, actually, it's Rich because we've <laughs> talked about it before. So this is a little plug for Rich to also have that pressure on that uh, we'll get to finish what what we're working on. Which, besides, now we're talking about new things. I'm also putting pressure on myself to finish a, a new website for the podcast and all of that good stuff. So lots of exciting things actually going on in the background, which. I don't talk about it before. Usually, it's ready, but uh, let's just put it out there in the open. It also means, actually, Rob, that I'm not sure we're going to get to the next one. Uh, I think we're going to save that about MMT, if you don't mind. Sure. You and I might do some 
other stuff that we talked about prior to uh, uh, getting the recording started. In terms of performance, it was quite handy, actually, that the month of September closed on a Thursday because these numbers are always Thursday's numbers. So the numbers I'm going to just talk about now is as of the end of uh, September. And another great month for CTAs. Beat up 50, up 89 basis points, up 8.6% for the uh, for the year. SockGen CTA index, up 67 basis points, up 7 and a quarter for the year. The trend index, up a strong 1.6%, up 10 and a quarter for the year. And the short-term traders index also turned around, up 27 basis points and up about half a percent for the year. My trend barometer finished, as I mentioned, at 59. So that's a strong read. So it certainly confirms the performance being positive in September. And interestingly enough, I had some conversations uh, during the week with um, with some of our clients and, and prospects and all of that. And um, people still kind of give me the impression that oh, trend following and CTAs is not really high on our agenda in terms of making investments. And I'm just looking at these numbers, right? And, and also because I think sometimes we talk ourselves down a little bit in terms of, oh yeah, it's been a difficult period. But if I just look at the trend index, the SockGen trend index, I mean, up more than 10% in 2021, up six and a quarter percent in 2020, up nine and a quarter in, 20, in 2019. These are pretty solid returns for, as a, for a benchmark uh, of the industry. And I'm pretty sure if you put them next to a lot of the other hedge fund strategies out there, they would rank pretty high. So I'm still puzzled a little bit why we don't generally see more enthusiasm other than on this podcast, of course, for these type of strategies, and especially at a time where inflation becomes much bigger of an issue, I think, and what that could do to the classical 60-40 portfolio, which I'm sure we'll come back to as well. Any final thoughts, Rob, um, before we we close up for this uh, this week? No, I don't think so. I'm, I'm going to go off this afternoon and watch the new James Bond film with my family. So I'm looking forward to some escapism from the... Uh, yes. Although we, we've actually... There's, there's a few memes going around in, in the UK at the moment. So suggesting new new titles for James Bond films, given what's happening with the energy crisis. So there's a couple of my favourites. One is A View to a Fill, obviously instead of A View to a Kill. <laughs> okay. So I, I just feel like it's gone a whole episode without me making it... Either of us making a bad joke. So I just... Thought I had to sneak one in at the end there. Yeah, yeah, you managed to do it. Well done, well done, Rob. So, uh, anyways, good luck with the movie. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous because I think it's always fun to watch these classic movies when they come out. Uh, and maybe, if, and now you can even watch them in a real cinema. Yeah, that's the plan. I guess you still have, maybe you have to wear a mask. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I need to check, but yeah. Yeah, you need yeah. to check that. Yeah, definitely. Anyways, on that note, we're going to wrap up this conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it and of course if you did if you wouldn't mind please go to itunes leave a rating and review and next week jerry is back so um, i'm sure he's going to have some pushback on some <laughs> of the things we talked about this week oh yes and i think we before the year end we will do one of these battles of the quant so yeah. to speak to to steal another another publisher's concept between rob and jerry maybe we'll get a few more people involved that could be fun but anyways Jerry is back next week. So send us the questions as always. You can either email them to infotoptradersonplot.com and we'll do our very best to get them out to you next week. From Rob and me, 
Thanks ever so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.